Welcome to Jack Golf Podcast. We are once again joined by Jack Mandible, the guy in front of you right now, and Scott Davidson, co-creator, co-host, co-producer, executive producer, head writer, main man, Scott Davidson. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for him. Scott, how are you doing? Doing well. How are you today? I got to leave the credits, by the way. I can't even, I'm going to reduce it down to one thing. I'm just happy to be here. Scott, I feel like every time we do this, you your collection is bigger and bigger, bigger. in the background. <laughs> that's that's like, the thing I'm trying. If you notice, I'm trying to do that on purpose now. I'm literally like, let me keep adding shit and see if anybody noticed until it's yeah. at like the Sanford and Son front yard. So like everyone's gonna be like, what the fuck is going on back there? Yeah. So I want yeah. to complete disaster. Like you'll notice next time, I'll have something different there. I want to see if you actually do like where's Waldo type of thing. Yeah, one of these days we're gonna tune in. It's just gonna be. It's literally gonna be. Not even me. Just gonna be. It's gonna be Lawrence Taylor just standing behind you, like, oh yeah, I'm paying him just to hang out. <laughs> that's all we're gonna uh, do. Well, at least we'll pay him. We'll get some good stories out of Lawrence Taylor. That's what I tell you now. <laughs> Our guest today is uh, he. Uh, he's an author. He is an army veteran. He is uh, he is uh, currently working for the Boeing company. Uh, there's actually a lot of meat to him, and we're going to cover it all. Uh, Flo Groberg, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Jack. Thanks, Scott. Glad to be here. Uh, you're looking really handsome, like you're dressed up for Thanksgiving or something like that. Yeah, this is the problem with corporate America. You know, actually, this is called, you know, Seattle dressed up. So a little, little shirt, little polo. But um, I have this motto, which is dress up like you're going to work every single day. So that way it gets my mind set and ready. Um, I even actually steamed this shirt this morning. My wife made fun of me for it as she's in her PJs doing her work. So, but I told her, I was like, I'm trying to act like I'm actually going somewhere in my life. And so this is, you know, the process going through. So she's just kind of giving me a thumbs up, said, do you? Uh, which is apparently according to this post I just made, one of the 10 things that are not good from your wife or your spouse. <laughs> I think it's actually number one. So, <laughs> But hey, that's I, a, that's a, I want to say, yes. Scott, I thought you were a Cowboys fan. Oh, my God. That breaks my heart. Oh, <laughs> God. Oh, my God. So I got to always represent, at least for the Redskins and all the stuff we do. But it, a couple things I always want to do. So if you can see and I hide it, depending on where it is, I have to have my own New York Jets in the back. Oh, hold on. Hold on now. Oh, bring me some Jets, love. I'm going to be so happy. There you go. You and I have suffered together for so long, Flo. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm, I'm just a, uh, I'm a rookie in all this. I do. Uh, Adam Gaze is one of my, my, my closest friends. So I did stuff with him with the Dolphins for three years, and now I'm helping him uh, with the, uh, with the Jets. You know, this is sort of like my passion, my fun stuff. So I got. That looks like one of those limited. Ed- that's like a limited edition hat, isn't it? It looks like one of those. Uh... <laughs> yeah, it's a nice one. You know, it's white. I'm just going to point that out here. My personal hero, he's going to have to be there. He is the head, the original man that's changed everything for the game, the original best jet ever. That's all I'm going to say. I'm going to name it. Yeah. Pretty good player. A <laughs> little bit, right? That's right. Dad, I'm, I'm even more happy now, Jack. I don't want to say anything else. The interview's over. Thank you for I, joining us. It's been great, guys. It's been great. We got Jets fans. We're good. <laughs> I thought we were here to talk about tennis, so I'm a little disappointed. <laughs> well, hey, hey, you want to talk about tennis? Think about Wimbledon. You know they've been paying $2 million a year for 14 years of, of insurance for a pandemic. 
They're the only one that's done it. And they just got paid out over $140 million in insurance money because they couldn't have the tournament this year. Think about Good that genius. Good for them. Good Think for about them. that genius. Yeah. All it takes is a <laughs> We're in the wrong racket. Yeah. What are we doing wrong? <laughs> Good for them, though, honestly. I, you know, uh, I would imagine that's a very old sport and a very old event. I would imagine they, they, they have a little more infrastructure than, uh, you know, something like the, uh, you know, NFL or something like that, which is comparatively a lot younger to uh, professional tennis. Yeah, it's true. Hey, it's speaking true. of that. They're smart, yeah. too, apparently. So that's all it's, it, tennis, tennis, obviously, is very popular in Europe. It's a, it's a European sport. And I think that will be a good segue into uh, opening up with you, Flo. Um, I, uh, I think one of the most intriguing things about you is uh, you spent the first half of your childhood, you were born and raised in, uh, suburban Paris. I was, yeah, I was born in Poissy, France, which is right outside of, um, you know, Paris. I lived in Achère and I lived in the 14th, uh, arrondissement, uh, which is, you know, uh, district in, in Paris. And so to be honest with you, uh, it was an interesting childhood. I lived in Spain for about a year in between that, but for the first 11, you know, 11 and a half years of my life, I was in Europe. Um, never met my biological father. And so, and my mom, my actual mom, uh, that, uh, many of you have met is that is my aunt, biological aunt. Uh, so yeah. her sister, her sister was a little bit young when I was born and, you know, she just couldn't, she, she actually couldn't, you know, take me in. So, Instead of going to a foster house, my my mother now, my aunt, so it's so confusing, um, you know, adopted me. And then a couple of years later, she met Larry, who's from, of all places, Gary, Indiana. Um, oh. Yeah. Now, no did doubt, he, he, right? grew up, he grew up in Gary, I'm assuming, during the hot years before things kind of uh, got a little rough around there. Well, today's his 82nd birthday. So I would say yes. He's, wow. he's, there, he's there during the Michael Jackson years when, when things oh, were, there's a lot that. of jobs to go around. Yeah. Crazy story about that. You know, since you're at, you brought up Michael Jackson, my dad used to take the train from Gary to Chicago. And obviously mm -hmm. Michael Jackson and his brothers and family's uh, father was Gary, yeah. on the train. And so when he'd come back to Gary at night, my dad used to give like a couple pennies or a dime to this group of kids who were singing, waiting for their dad to be done with the ship. And that was Jackson's. No. So, <laughs> yeah. The Jackson yeah. five. Yeah. yeah he, he, probably already, he, he would have been That's in his twenties right. or thirties when they were, when they probably his thirties when they were young, I would imagine. Yeah, probably. Yeah. I mean, you know, he's born in 38. So yeah. Yeah. He would have been, he would have been uh, well into his uh, career at that point. That's interesting. Around a long time, um, they're local <laughs> legends, and so let's. I want to. I want to learn more about Larry as we get into. Um, you lived. You lived in France till you were twelve, and and, and that part that that district of France, from what I understand, is kind of a lot of um, uh, French Algerian around there. Correct. So, and I mean, I share where I lived and grew up is it's just you know immigrant central, right? And mm -hmm. you know, Which I mean, everybody's French, but. A lot of Algerians, Moroccans, you know, Senegalese, uh, people from Africa, people from Portugal, all around. And so it's, uh, it's diverse. Uh, it's unique. It's also not, it wasn't the best of neighborhoods uh, or little area. You know, I grew up and you just, you know, spend 90% of my time outside the house, right? Whether it's school and after school, you, you play sports or you're outside in, in the park and Got into a lot of fights. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it was cool. I mean, I, I enjoyed, you know, my childhood. 
Uh, but in to honestly, I'll be honest with you, no matter what I didn't have, it felt like I had everything. Right. It right. was just it was pretty pretty impactful that, to me. At that age, I would imagine uh if you know, you don't know how much you're lacking, you only know what you have. So you you probably appreciate, you know, you know, any fun or that you can have. Yeah, except yeah, I didn't appreciate my dad. I did did appreciate it, but you know, Larry after he met my mom. So I was about three, three and a half when he met my mom. Um, and, you know, he was for years living still in the U.S. and going back and forth. He traveled for Motorola. So, oh, uh, so he so was working how, in Paris. Yeah, he was working in Paris. He was doing a lot of – my dad's job when he went and did deals, right, like he, would, he, he oversaw projects, right? So he would go and spend months in those places. So my entire life, like going through high school, he was gone at least six months out of the year like on business. And so that was, that's how it kind of worked out with us anyway. And he got to spend a lot of time with us, but every time he went to the U S and came back to France, he brought me a gift, you know, like tennis shoes, a bath, like a magic Johnson basketball, t-shirts, hats, whatever. Right. Right. And then I would wear that stuff because I was an idiot outside. Uh, and all my ghetto friends would be like, yo, I want those Michael Jordan shoes. <laughs> so those are just as so hot in Paris fights. as they are in New York city. Then. <laughs> I got in so many fights because people were just trying to jack my stuff. But That's, so you're, so you're, you're, I'm, I'm assuming Larry finally convinces your mother to, to come back to the States. Yeah. I think, you know, he's, he got enough of France. <laughs> yeah. Like, let's, let's take this to the next level. You know, there, he, he, uh, he came to my room. I'll never forget this. I was playing Nintendo. I was actually playing punch out. Uh, one of the greatest games in Nintendo. And he came in my room and he asked me, hey, do you want to eat McDonald's whenever you want? Uh, <laughs> what a guy. That's the most American yeah. question you yeah. can ask. And I like, I love it. I'm looking at him like, you know, at this point, like I stopped playing the game. I'm like, yes. He's like, and do you want to meet Michael Jordan? Because, you know, obviously Michael Jordan was so famous and like, you know, yeah. the ultimate athlete in any sport. Right. International. Like, Even Kim, little Kim Jong-un, who's our, the same age as us, roughly, he was a huge Jordan fan. But, I mean, I think Jordan could have like, you know, not Rodman, but if Jordan went out there, he could create peace around the world. Yeah. You know, that's all he you have to do is just show yeah. up. Be like, this is over, right? And everybody be like, yeah, it's cool. We're good. We're friends. More important now. than the... More important than the Secretary of State in a lot of ways. Oh, a thousand times more important than that. Yeah, but it's I mean, sadly. <laughs> sadly. <laughs> yeah. But reality is, he asked me if I wanted to meet him. And I said, absolutely. He's like, well, if you move to the U.S., you get to eat McDonald's and you'll meet Michael Jordan. And just like that, man. And like <laughs> you were in. a minute, my loyalty to my country, my friends, <laughs> my family went out the window for McDonald's, probably a Big Mac, and this guy, Michael Jordan. Which, you know, I did meet, but I met him because he walked in front of me like 10 years later. Random. Okay. So, <laughs> so he I lied guess... to me about that piece. <laughs> Wait, but did you at least get to eat McDonald's whenever you wanted? Hell no. <laughs> I was yeah. going to say, I mean, you're, you have a good figure flow. I imagine you've always had a good figure. McDonald's every day would ruin a child. It was, it, I, I don't know if it ruined I would have loved it, but. I just came in, man. I got when I got to the U.S. So we moved, and I got to the U.S. It was so shocking. I mean, it's not we. I visited, right? I've been here on vacations and stuff, but it was so shocking. I live in in Palatine, Illinois, suburbia center. Yeah, I, I would imagine that's outside of Chicago. Then yeah, forty five minutes northwest. Okay. And 
brother, I we lived in this like townhome. He had a townhome there, and I remember walking out of his townhome and trying to figure out where's the bus, where's the metro, where are people? Yeah, I was so in awe and shocked because I come from the city. I, I mean, yeah. this is my entire life. And here I was in this world where, like, there's literally no one outside. Or maybe, like, a person walking a dog. It was so eerie. And then the cars were all so big. I know yes. it sounds crazy, but you know this. They're yeah. smaller in Europe. And, and so, like, you don't have big, like, you know, chargers, right? Or, I mean, my dad's Oldsmobile was like a tank. Right. I was, yeah, I felt like I was in the twilight zone. It was crazy. So you're, you're 12 years old. Did you have any – did you speak a lick of English at that point? Nope. I mean, I – when when my dad came up with the idea of um and proposed the idea of moving my mom was very good about it she, she you know she she kind of did a town hall with three of us uh then she kicked one person out which is my dad so then it was just my mother and i and she's just like do you want to do this this is the consequences and i wanted to move to the u.s right i mean that's it's even in france the u.s that's like the golden place right that's like really as a, absolutely i was just like this is amazing this is where all the cool stuff are happening all the you know, it's it's Disney Chicago. World, Disney World. Chicago is a well-known city. Yeah. Chicago is a well-known world. city. Yeah. Great food, yeah. been there, loved it. Um, and so you know, it was an easy sell for me. I also was young enough that I didn't realize the true impact of moving, you know, from a different nation. So about for six months, I started taking some English courses. But I mean, honestly, I didn't. I, I knew what twelve words, thirteen words. But I came here, I was very, um, you know, I, I was not fluent at all and actually didn't know much. So that was a very interesting time in that moment. Was that to you, I mean, I don't, I don't seem you, just in general, you don't seem to be someone that gets intimidated. But was it for even at your age, would you feel like you still have the confidence because like you're still walking in big United States essentially, but you didn't speak the language. Did you feel like, all right, this is going to be terrible or what had you feel about that? You feel like, you know, it wasn't even a thought that you're just going to learn it. And you're going to go. No, I mean, the only thing I, I, I came in full confident, like excited as a child, right. You don't really think about these things as 11, 12 year old, right. You're just no. thinking about this is cool. Like a different country, but I did get scared after I watched my first episode of Barney. Um, that <laughs> fucked me over a little bit. Yeah. I was just like, what is this big ass, you know, dinosaur, purple dinosaur singing, singing creepy songs to children? And Bro, that's when I started thinking, like, Jesus, like, am I, is this a nightmare? Is this what people, okay, this is, they tricked me. How different, how different is TV there? I mean, did you see, what were the shows? I mean, that had to be astonishing too, to see so, a party from what you were watching. Yeah, what, what's the difference there you saw? So, like, the most of the shows, like, the, the, I mean, there are all sorts of crazy shit in France, too. But, like, I watch, like, Dragon Ball Z. I, I watch there's a lot of soccer, like, you know, uh, Asian, you know like, uh, like Japanese type of cartoons. But, like, you know, in French. But, like, soccer and stuff. I watch that. But we also had, like, Care Bear or, you know, stuff. Now, but, yeah. Moving to Chicago, you were in WGN land. You, you didn't get freaked out by Bozo the Clown at all? Man, I don't, dude. First, I don't, I don't look at clowns. I, 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 I can't do clowns. It which the clown, as we know up. it, that obviously there's the American version of the clown, but it evolved from uh, the French mime. Well, I'll tell you one. Th yes, it did. Uh, uh, Marcel Marceau. Uh, That's right. And by the way, a great movie on him called uh, Resistance. You should watch this mm -hmm. movie on on this guy. He. Um, um, Writing it down. 
Yeah. yeah, it's called Resistance. It's the guy that uh, that did uh, play Mark Zuckerberg in Facebook, the actor. You know? Yeah, yeah. He, he plays him. It's an incredible story about this this you know Jewish French guy who um, uh, smuggled children, Jewish children, to Switzerland, uh, and, and and he just he, against the Nazis, and he had, it's unbelievable story. And then he became the most famous mime in in, in our history. You know, even bigger than uh, Chaplin. So. But um, no, I don't do clowns because I grew up with a family where my mom allowed me to watch Platoon at the age of four. So there was definitely, and while she's smoking a cigarette and probably drinking vodka and maybe giving me some. And so like a movie <laughs> it's like very it, French. Yeah, a movie like It was okay to watch as a family on a Saturday night. And, if, and to, that, to this day, I can't stand clowns. Like it is, especially <laughs> <laughs> me out. So both of the clown can go fuck himself. That's what you could. Say. <laughs> so, th so that's a good question. So that's a good question. You were watching Platoon at a young age, and what? So you, you're in the states now. Obviously, you're getting there during very important formative years, your middle school years. You, um, did you find it easy to make friends in that area? Were were, uh, were you able to integrate? As well as uh, you know, obviously, someone new to the language and culture can. Well, I had some disadvantages. Obviously, language is one. Two, I was short, like incredibly short. My, I didn't hit a growth spurt to my junior high school. I was five one as a sophomore in high school. Wow. wow. Yeah. So, and you know how that is, especially in the U.S., man. Like, I. But what I was good at, is I was national champion in judo uh, in France oh. when I came here. So I was a fighter. So anyone I wanted them, and I actually grew up in the, in, in the streets. Literally, that's what you know. I'm going to say now because it just sounds cool. Um, but, but American so kids. And the suburbs especially do not operate at the same level as kids no. from London and Paris and Madrid do. No, like it's a I, lot more physical in Europe in a lot of ways. Yeah. When I fought, I, I fucked you up. Like I'll take a rock and smash your brains in. You know, like they when they fought, they push you and scream at you and like, you know, laugh. No, I yeah. I went in for the kill. And so that was very shocking to people. Um <laughs> but thankfully I only had to do that once. Uh, uh well not no rocks, nothing. But um you know, so I I was very I was tough, but it was just I think it, I think a lot of kids just made fun of me, and then but because of the language barrier, right. but then when it came down to sports, I, I earned a lot of respect. To be honest with you, I've been I was equalizer because yeah, I could play sports, I could fight, and I could I was a pretty decent soccer player, uh, and obviously in the end, ended up being a track athlete in college. So that was a huge equalizer because at that point people stopped, you know, looking at you for your weaknesses and they're like, oh shit, this guy, yep, yeah, he doesn't speak English, but he's a good runner. He's a good soccer player. So that helped. But I mean, I got into it with some folks. I got put in a locker freshman year of high school. Um, oh, that, I mean, that is stereotypical high school. Yep. Yeah. I, I mean, I right fit there. in perfectly. It was <laughs> had so much room. I took a nap I in there. You, know? I mean, you, you definitely would you walk in and out there, no problem. <laughs> but that, that guy regretted it. Um, I learned about keying cars at that moment. But anyway, just a long story. Uh, <laughs> so, so, so to put it polite, you, you were a wiry kid when you needed to be. Yeah, yeah. I just didn't, you know, you could mess with me, but I, 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 I hit back. Um, yeah. But it was cool. But, you know, really, uh, I went through a tough period when I was just about 12 years old during my 13th year when my uncle was killed mm -hmm. um, in Algeria. And so this is really one of the most interesting part of my life because, you know, people don't realize, so, I mean, you just look at me, but half my family is Arab, right? Half my <laughs> family is Algerian. 
And my uncle, who was my favorite person in the world, you know, aside from my parents, he was killed in 1996 when he was fighting against the terrorist organization called a GIA, right? Predecessors of Al Qaeda. Yeah. Uh, were, were they a, a regional force in Algeria? Or well, they, they came into of... Algeria, yes. So they, what they were trying to do is they came in in late 80s, early 1990s and really started, you know, to, they wanted to change, you know, bring Sharia oh, law. They, they weren't, they weren't Algerians then. Some of them were, I mean, they, you know, but some, but it's not, you know, but they were coming in from parts of different parts of, of, you know, of Africa and different parts of the Middle East. And they came in and said, this is ridiculous that women can wear mini skirts, smoke cigarettes and go out dancing. Right. I mean, that was the, that's what my mom did. She drank, smoked cigarettes, still does mm-hmm. smoke cigarettes and, you know, and drinks today. Right. It was, you know, they, she, it was a different world. And these folks came in and they were like, nope, can't have that. So they tried to take over the government. And then they did take over the government, but illegally. And the army stepped up and my uncle, who was wanted his entire life, right? He was young when he was killed. He was 22 years old when he died. So but his entire life growing up, he wanted to be an imam. He wanted to be a preacher of the Muslim faith. And so when these folks came in and started you know, killing people and, and scaring people and terrorizing people, he said, well, you know, they're taking my religion, the Quran, and they're perverting it and creating this false, you know, teaching. Mm-hmm. And so based upon the Quran, my jihad is to go fight these people who are like, you know, and so he did. And guess what? He would own the army, became a commando, came to Fort Bragg, had an opportunity to do some training as a foreign, you know, uh, a military guy, went yeah. back. Dude, he was amazing for a long time. And um, unfortunately, during a ceasefire, um, his unit was ambushed to, to observe Ramadan during a ceasefire. Oh he was ambushed. He was shot in the, in, in the heart. Then they took his body, they dismembered him, cut his head, his legs, his arms, and they sent it to my grandfather as a warning to my grandfather. Because my grandfather was pretty well known during, uh, he was a prisoner of war in the French Vietnam, Andochine. And he also was one of the main characters uh, to for the liberation of Algeria against the French. So, really, yeah. So I feel like I mean, we could be doing an entire show on this at this point. Um, that's uh, that's that's an aspect of uh, the 20th century that um, people, obviously, people older than us are knowledgeable. It was all over the news, but I don't think people realize how big of a deal that was back then when the French lost all the, it was happening in Vietnam as well. They lost all their colonial power. But it happened very violently. People don't realize that. Oh, it was, it was ugly. I mean, they, the, the, the French, uh, um, the Algerian independence started with bombing of a restaurant with mm-hmm. people eating in it. Terrorists act, right? Yeah. Um, and so, but that was a way for them to really, you know, push their message and they wanted their country back. Now, the French are also geniuses. You got to give it to them. What the French do is they, when they realize like this is going to get really bloody, which is, you know, and they don't want to get into this mess, they do is they, they say, okay, cool, got it. You're independent, freedom. But we have a lot invest, invested in they you, maintain in your economic. country, in your economy. So why don't we become business partners? That way we'll help you set yourself up for success. We're, you know, still, you know, working out this whole piece and there's a good, easy transition. And then all these countries, majority of them, they still are technically pretty much owned by the French. <laughs> We're right. right. Everything in Vietnam, a lot of 
Yeah. In Vietnam, every a lot of the language you're going to see is French signs, French advertisements. And, well, the, you know what um, the Algerians did? The last thing I'll tell you, this is the funniest thing to me. I love the story more than anything else. They, they all, when they, they kicked the French out, they're like, screw you. We're not doing any business deals with you. Get out. So then it took all the French signs, threw them, up, you know, removed them, put all Arabic signs everywhere. You, if you land in Algeria and try to take a taxi cab at that point, you're screwed. Why? Because 90% of these folks couldn't even read Arabic. <laughs> so now, so they had to go back and put Arabic signs with French so people could read them. <laughs> it's ridiculous. So, so is, is that how uh, your, your, uh, your family ended up in France was the post-Algerian uh, Revolution? Well, it's, no, so my mom came in. I mean, remember, like, if you're, so my mom was born in 1957, still a French colony, so she's mm -hmm. automatically, at that point, if you're a colony, you're a French you're, citizen, you're a right? Citizen. You're a French citizen, yeah. which is like the beauty of, of now the French complain about all these immigrants in their country. We'll figure that one out, right? But I mean, you know, why am I going to live in Algeria when I can live in Paris? Well, I mean, Algeria is great. I, I think it's actually a beautiful country and it's got a hell of an economy now. But I mean, if you had an opportunity to go from one spot or like Senegal, right, to be in Paris, France, I'd probably take Paris, right. France. There's right. definitely a little more industry there for sure. A little bit, right? Opportunity yeah. is just like, you know, it's the way it works. But um, so she was born and, you know, as a French citizen as well as Algerian. And then she moved when she was 18 years old from Algeria to France, just like the majority of her brothers and sisters. She's got, you know, 11 brothers and sisters. So that's my, my grandfather. To be a war hero, I was also getting busy. Yeah, it's probably. Hey, let's just put it. Let, let's just let's put it. Just put it simply. Grandpa banged. All right. Yeah. Oh, it did a little yeah. bit of that. Little here, a little there. So I, I'm taking us off track because that is super intriguing. Um, but I go back to you mentioning earlier how you were watching Platoon at a very young age. You, you, you got you graduated high school. You went to college at uh, IU, Indiana University in Bloomington. There. No, I did. I went to UNC Wilmington, University of North Carolina at Wilmington. Um, oh, okay. With Mr. James, I've seen James out there. Um, and then I, I was only there for a semester. Uh, and then I transferred to Maryland to just go because I wanted to a bigger challenge for, for track and track and field and okay. academically also. I wanted to go to Maryland at that point. I wanted to get back to, you know, closer to my teammates, friends and my, you know, my family, even though that backfired my family. Because as soon as I moved back, six months later, my parents moved to Wilmington. So that was <laughs> it's, a, it's a nice town. It's a nice town. Yeah, but there's like, I can go golf here. This is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> what did you, so, what are your events in track? I'm just curious. What are your events in track and field? Uh, anything from, really, I, I specialize in the two mile, mile, two mile, better man, anything from eight, 800 meters to, to the 10K. So everybody hated you in the army when they had to run with you, basically. Dude, uh, running, running gave me such a massive advantage in your army it's unbelievable I, i'll get into that man this is okay. it's, it's actually <laughs> that's, huge that's, he said that i was like oh my god he's the double a triple a group which i never wanted to ever hang out with this guy <laughs> <laughs> Leader from the front. <laughs> so did you decide you want to do the army while you're in college or is that something you want to do as uh, as a adolescent uh, yeah when so did that when did that seep into your head Interestingly, every single male in my family, you know, join a serve in the military, whether it's in France, Algeria, you US, have a lot right? of cousins in the French military. Yeah, my, 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 my cousin is, is currently fighting now. Um, I think he, I don't even know where he's at, but he's been in Africa. I think he's been in Iraq. Um, yeah, he's a, um, 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 they call him mountain warrior. So whatever the hell that is, they wear a big pizza hat and they're pretty <laughs> tough. But, um, 
No, I um, I knew at 13. I mean, after my uncle was killed, uh, I uh, I made a vow to myself. I took all, remember, I took all my G.I. Joes. And I mean, I wasn't playing with that shit anymore, but and but I still had my little green and, and you know, German soldiers, right? Little figurine stuff. And I burned all that shit. Uh, and I, I told myself, that's the last time I'll ever play war. Um, and the next time I'll wear a uniform. And so I, I uh, but, you know, like anything in life, everything sort of, you know, time heals all wounds. But I knew at an early age what I wanted to do was to join the military. Then I had an opportunity to go and run track in college, right, scholarships. So I figured, hell, let me go get an education and let me go, you know, and then after that I'm done, I'll serve my country, which was a huge advantage to me versus a lot of my peers is. I knew exactly what I wanted to do in my life, which is so mm-hmm. cool to go to college. Now I have to worry about like, what's next. Right. Like I knew you knew you wanted to commission. Yeah. I knew I wanted to commission. I knew I wanted to join. Now my freshman year though, nine 11 happened. You know, as soon as I get to school. So at that point I almost dropped out. And the only you didn't want to miss out on anything. No, well, I was pissed, bro. I was pissed. Yeah. I had just been naturalized as a US, U.S. citizen five months prior. Right. Uh, my dad has officially adopted me, all that good stuff. And here I am. And the same type of people would have terrorized my family, killed my uncle, are now like killed, you know, 2,996 people. And, you know, well, minus them. So screw them. Right. Yeah. And, and minus 18. And, yeah. yeah. Fuck, you know, fuck them. Uh, you know, in New York and DC and Pennsylvania. And I was incredibly infuriated because to me, that was even more personal than. And the majority of the folks who didn't were not directly impacted by 9-11, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt like this was like it, this evil was following me. And so at that point, I wanted to be a part of the solution. The only way to be a part of the solution is to be part of the forces that are going to go out there and eradicate this virus and these groups of, of, uh, of evil. And so I, um, I almost dropped out by my dad. My dad asked me one simple question. And he said... Um, what is the one thing I asked of you when I gave you my name? And I couldn't remember, of course. Um, so then he asked, he said it to me again. He says, when a Groberg starts something, he or she finishes it. Because if you find a reason to quit now, you will find a reason to quit anything else that you will start in the rest of your life, whether it's a relationship, a job, a father, right? And whatever it is. And so I hated that answer. I hated that comment. And I thought about it. At the time, remember, like, it's not like we went to war on September 12th. Some folks did. Some folks did, to be honest, but not as a country, right? It took a couple of years later to go to Iraq and all stuff. So it wasn't like the immediate need. I need to get out. Let's go. I felt that way, but, you know, I slept on it and I thought about it and I figured, shit, as soon as I'm done with school, I'm joining. And so that was the catalyst and it solidified my, my plan and my pathway. At that point, I was even more comfortable knowing, boom, this is what I'm doing. Now, I had some tough moments in 2003, four, and five, when you start thinking about shit, man, I want to be in Iraq. I want to be with these guys because I now some of my friends went over there. Something come yeah. back, so it got really incredibly personal quick. So you you waited your time out. When when did you commission? So I commissioned in 2008, and the reason okay. why it took me so long is because it took almost two years for the French government to renounce my French citizenship. Yeah. Really? Yeah. So because enlisted people are able to get in pretty easily. Is it different for the officer corps? I couldn't get a clearance, and then I got flagged. Oh so, wow! So they wouldn't allow me in. So when I went to Maps, I did the whole thing, you know, and you do SF eighty six, and mm-hmm. then they they you know obviously saw that I was French. I had French passport and everything. So 
They're like, all you have to do is just return your passport, go to the French embassy, fill out some paperwork, and then once they give you a letter, come back and you should be good. That would be enough. So I did that. I did all that. And the French were like, yeah, no problem. We really appreciate the fact that you want to go serve, you know, in the U.S. Army, which you could do in the French Army, which I thought was a joke. But I didn't, you know, <laughs> and that didn't go so well. But um, long story short, it took them six months to actually do the paperwork. Right? That's it. Just because just of red tape? Yeah, but, but then it took them over a year and, and, and a half almost uh, for them to, uh, no, a little less than a year and a half, about a year to send me the paperwork. And remember, this is in those days where you need to get a letter. You couldn't get an email or nothing. You need to get a letter for it. So I waited so long for it. And it was the most shitty. It was one of the shittiest times ever because every day you don't know if that letter is going to be in your mailbox. So every day you look forward to it. And every day you're disappointed uh, until you I get it. You, you probably felt like you were in purgatory, I would imagine. Oh, it's terrible. I mean, look, I, I, I mean, I, I, it, it got frustrating because you know – you, you're you're at the door, right? You open the door, door, it's open. You can't get through it. And this is what I wanted to do. And so it was really frustrating, but it taught me a little bit about patience. I'm still not great with patience, but definitely, definitely taught me a little bit about patience. And um, But once I got that letter, I went straight to the recruiters, uh, went back to MEPS, did the SF-86, got the, the interim um, clearance. And then it took, you know, but I went as an officer. So then you have to go in front of a board. So it, takes, it took a little bit longer. And, and, and what career field did you go into initially? So that's the thing. You go in as an officer and then you go, I did basic, right? Mm -hmm. And then you go to officer candidate school. So you don't have a career field. You compete for it. I just wanted, um, to, I just wanted to just give a big shout out that Flo and I are both from the betting school for boys. So Alpha 0201, that's what I'm Okay, doing. all right. So him and I, when I say prepare to sing, we can sing. <laughs> We're not singing though. <laughs> We're not going to say the worst thing ever. It's still to those days. I still remember that. I didn't realize you commissioned social associates. So at least I know you're a real officer. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah. And so, you know, at the time you got your nice little ascot and you compete for your job. And so I, uh, after six weeks, I was second on the order of merit, uh, order of merit list OML. And I would never forget this. You probably remember this. Right? You, you kind of go up in front of the whole class and you're like, I choose infantry. Right. right? And so like a dumbass, And I did that, fired up because that was only 18 infantry slots for like 200 of us. That's right. And everybody and their mother wanted to be infantry for some reason. And so then I was super fired up about it. I remember like calling my dad that night and saying, oh, man, I picked infantry. You know, you'd be proud. He was a Corps of Engineers himself in Vietnam. So and he goes, oh, so you pick Ranger School. I didn't understand what he meant by that. I was like, no, I picked infantry. He's like, no, nah, you picked ranger school. I said, okay, dude, whatever you're talking about, old Ed, you know, I got you. Uh, about six months later, I realized what the hell he was talking about. That's right. <laughs> so straight, to, yeah. straight to ranger school. Yeah. Yeah, once you commission, he goes, that you're, you're, you're stuck on Benny. You don't really leave. You go to airborne school, you'll do everything. Yeah. You. So, yeah, I went to airborne school. I, I signed in airborne school on July 4th, actually. Well, uh, July 3rd, sorry. Yeah. Um, it was pretty cool. And then we got that week, the three-day weekend. And so then I, I went in, and um, I uh, absolutely completely hated airborne school. Um, that's when I realized I was afraid of heights. <laughs> that's a fucking shitty place to figure out you're afraid of heights. Yeah, I was going to so, say, it took you a good, what, 25, 26 years at that point to figure that out? Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I, I can look down at a building, but, man, at a certain point, 
when you put me in one of those little metal boxes that I work for now, or a company that makes them. Um, That's a little ironic, yeah. No kidding. Uh, but uh, you learn quick that you have no choice. Just jump out. It's a lot easier to jump out. It's a lot less painful to jump out than trying to stay in the in the, in the bird. So, <laughs> just... With the jump towers, I don't know when they closed. Were they open when you were there? I'm just curious. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, okay. I was a, you know, they're, they're now like an historic thing. They don't use them, I heard, anymore. Why? Dad. The hell did they do? Yeah. I don't, I don't know. It is there for like an historic purpose now, but I was just I don't know when it closed. I got to look it up. But somebody told me that they no longer use them. Um, they probably jump. They probably go to a gym and jump on like some nice cush pads right now. You know, like hey, this is nice. Yeah, I would assume that. But yeah, I don't know why they did, did that. But I remember, and you'll remember this too, because I remember when we used to march around like a bunch of idiots with the drum. You know, with the ascots to and from Building Four. Um, I remember watching the jump towers because we know we, we were going to wind up going there. And I'm like, oh. And like part of me was like, I can't wait till I'm on the other side because I don't want to walk around this ascot anymore with this stupid drum behind me. Because, Jack, they used to literally have a guy, two guys, with a with like a, the big bass drum. I think it's a bass drum. I don't know. And like a thing. And they would drum us around. And that's how we would march everywhere. There was no cadence. It would literally just play drum. And we no, had all the time for marching. Is that, just, is that just to announce that everybody's brand new? And is it like <laughs> meant to Dude, it was everywhere. I just was like, Flo could tell you. I just, it's the one thing that stuck out. Like basic training, whatever. I just remember it was like, ugh, like you could hear the drum from like a mile, like from miles away. So now, like, Scott, we we didn't have drums, thank God. Oh um, my God, are you oh, yeah, thank God. Us, I probably lost my shit. They That's how they embarrassed us. They literally so they had two people they picked from the team from from the from the the uh, company, and like they're like, who here ever played an instrument? Like you know, two people like you know, the whole bunch of people. Who played the drums? And of course, it's going to be like two people. They're like, great, you guys get to carry these things. And the guy had the snare drum, and he had like that big, you know, the I don't know, I, don't know, I think it's a bass. I don't That's know what it's called. You know, about, like the thing, yeah. they would have to keep our beat. And they were, as we walked down anywhere, building four, no matter where we marched, they were in the bank and they back and they would just hit the thing like, you know, one, two, three, four. And that's it. No cadence was allowed until no, not even until senior phase. I'm thinking, but yeah, for up until that, maybe into basic and immediate phase. We had to walk around with some guys following us with drums and nobody was allowed to speak. Everybody would look at us. I'll tell you what, that was an interesting part. But, hey, I want to go back to that one piece, though. I'll tell you one thing that uh, you asked me a question about running in the Army. And I will never forget my first PT test in the Army in basic training. Yeah. With the first sergeant there, and you ran down in Sand Hill. You ran down one mile down this road, and then you had a number in your hand or whatever it was. You give it to the sergeant at the end, and then you run back. And I ran – in nine, nine minutes and 48 seconds, um, the two mile. And the first sergeant went ape shit on me, started smoking me, saying that I was a integrity violation, that <laughs> I cheated and all that shit. And I didn't know what to do. You know, I was like, I was like, I didn't cheat. And he's like, shut up, you know, don't talk, whatever. And so he called, you know, he's got a little, he called his little radio. He calls back to that guy and he's like, is there, did you see a guy? roster whatever did he give you his number he's like oh you talking about the dude that was flying you know he's like yup he's like yeah he made it here like, are you serious so then the guy's like, now he's smoking me for being fast at that point he's and then he tells me you're gonna guide on for the rest of your guide on for the rest of basic um but that plates 
we won every competition in basic. We had the most phone calls, which is like four, right? Right. Uh, we got the most PX runs, you know, than anyone else. Uh, it, it really gave me, you know, an opportunity. I got the leadership award and all. It's not because I was a better leader than anyone else at the time. It's just because I came in and I was just superior in athletics because I was a division one athlete. And they associated that with being that I was disciplined. That's what they told me. They're like, no, you obviously were disciplined because you worked so hard to get to that level that obviously shows us that you're a leader. I disagree uh, to this point that just because you're a good run doesn't make you a good leader. But I don't understand the fundamentals behind it. Right. But that's also, that's typical military right there for them to, like if you, if you can edge someone out physically in any way, they look at you as superior on almost every, they'll, they won't question you until you prove them wrong, basically. Like, yeah. that's, you know, in the Marines, like, if you can do a lot of pull-ups, oh, man, let's just promote this guy right now. We don't know anything <laughs> else about him, but he can do pull-ups. Um, hey, be, I agree. You, so you go through all your schooling. Um, what unit, what, what was your first assignment, and did you go straight into deployments from there? Yes. Yeah, so I went to my school, and I went to Ranger School. Um, by far, the, one of the, the, the best and worst experiences of my life. Um, got lucky. I think we started with 333, 69 of us graduated straight through. I was wow. part of that, uh, that, that, that cohort I did. So, uh, very lucky, uh, during, during those phases, I just good folks onto me and, and good peers. And we just, you know, we knocked out a ballpark, but as soon as I graduated, so yeah, 62 days in this wonderful vacation center, I, I, I cleared out of Fort Benning in rapid time because my unit, I was at 45D, 4 Brigade out of Fort Carson, no. was deployed to Afghanistan. So uh, Clint Romache, he yeah. was part of that unit. So yeah. he was already in Keating. So I graduated right before Keating, uh, Cop Keating happened. Like about all, all the time. is making sense now. Okay. Yeah. So I tried to, I clear post in three days. I drove straight to Carson checked in to brigade and asked them like, you know, please put me in a unit and deploy me as quickly as possible. They're like, all right, hold on young fucking soldier and Lieutenant, yeah. you know, like yeah, there's a process. You got to get your shot. Oh, so, so I was in, um, what do you call those, uh, those, uh, replacement unit? Um, Oh my God. RIP. No, not rest in peace. <laughs> Whatever you call. Um, I was part of that group for two weeks. So it was pretty quick. And, um, you know, so, and then in the end of November, I was already in Afghanistan. So you, you, uh, you got, they gave you your equipment, you BZO'd your, your rifle and you were ready to go. 100%. I didn't, I, I didn't, I never fired my rifle at Fort, at, at, at the, uh, at Carson. You, never did. you didn't do one training, no, no. training at, uh, no. I, 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 in, in the, the regular army. No, nothing. I just literally, I, uh, I did a rough march once with some of the replacement soldiers that were going to be deploying with me. I got to meet them and, um, and I, I, I didn't even get a rifle. <laughs> you know, I, my first rifle was in Afghanistan. So, yeah. and I did none of that stuff. All I did is just, you know, the paperwork and the process, right? And you go through your medicals and all that stuff. And I just kind of deployed, which I was very happy about. And so, yeah, boom, here I go. And I land a month after ranger school. I'm in Afghanistan, um, and a couple weeks later, I'm I'm leading troops in in Combat Outpost Hanukkah Miracle out there in in Southern Kunar. That's absolutely insane. So, uh, crash course in leadership, I would imagine. Like that's some OJT stuff right there. Yeah, you know, I I wrote a post um, uh, years ago when I worked for LinkedIn 
on called um, a cross course in leadership, shut up and listen. Mm-hmm. And that entire post is about my relationship with um, my platoon sergeant mm-hmm. and fully understanding the fact that that was the first time I was ever scared in my life, like truly scared, is when Lieutenant Colonel Pearl, our battalion commander, sat me in his office and told me that I was taking over Dagger 4 platoon and that I would have 24 men under my command and that to fuck it up because their lives were in my hands. And that's the first time I ever walked out of anything truly scared and petrified at the reality that I was facing that now all that training, all those, you know, those courses, those schools, all that stuff, all that doctrine that they, you know, put in your head, that was coming to fruition. And I actually had the responsibility of other people under my command. So, which meant that decision-making, the decision I would make going forward would potentially impact whether or not people lived or died. Mm -hmm. And that was very scary to me. I called my dad, you know, I'll never forget this. I'm a, I'm a uh, fob blessing. I called my dad and I told him exactly what I just told you. And his response was like, are you fucking kidding me? Don't you ever call me that bullshit. Find your most senior NCO. Tell him you're a bitch. And, you know, I didn't say that exactly. (laughs) Tell him him how you feel and that you need his his help. And then go out there and be a man. Don't ever call me with that stuff. And he hung up on me. <laughs> uh, I was like, "Oh my God, this guy!" I can I, I'm seeing tomorrow. a pa- I'm seeing a pattern of of very blunt language with him. <laughs> yeah, he's, blunt he's, conversations. Men, a few words, very wise words. But um, and you know, his, his that's from his experiences. I've seen he wasn't he was a sergeant, right? So he was, you know, and he understood it. And I I took that to heart. And that's when I went and talked to my platoon sergeant. As soon as I got to the unit, uh, Sergeant First Class Corey Staley, and I said, "Hey." You know, I'm Lieutenant Groberg. His immediately first words to me is like, I can read your name tag, sir. So I figured that was a great start. But long story short, I told him I took my pride, my ego, and my rank. I'm putting him to the side, right? And I'm here man to man asking him for his support, his guidance, his mentorship to be the most effective leader for this platoon. I said, I'm not, I will still make decisions. I'm still going to take responsibility. I'm not scared to do this, but I need you with all years and years of experience to help me mold me into the right platoon, uh, platoon leader. And I shocked the shit out of him. So he just told me to shut up. And, <laughs> you know, over the course of the next week, we'd go out and patrol. You know, you're doing your left seat, right seat. And, yeah. you know, just to listen and watch and take notes and go meet the men, figure out where they're from, why they join the Army, but don't get too close to them. And then once we get a briefing from the CO, you know, we'll put a plan together. We'll brief it to the squad leaders, get their input, finalize it, and then he's giving me a platoon. And his leadership single-handedly his nco leadership is the reason why i was successful as a lieutenant and is the reason why i was successful successful in the military because instead of shitting on me and being another lieutenant and just kind of like doing his thing he took invested time in, in developing me uh as a brother and, and as a as a supportant but also as a leader and that completely changed my life i i think people uh you even in, even in the private sector, civilians, as you will, uh, it's just as applicable, but people underestimate the importance of mentorship, mentorship in this world, uh, especially in the military, especially as a young lieutenant, you're walking into an environment where you have a lot of, you know, you had, you had specialists that were more experienced than you, but you're, you're over them. It's a very complicated nature of um, command there, but the, the importance of leadership is absolutely uh, for, for, for the platoon to succeed, you have to succeed. So they're going to, they need to give you all the tools you can uh, possibly have. And, and the biggest, I totally agree. 100% agree. But the biggest piece also is 
there's no specific pathway or 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 person for you to be a mentor for you, right? And my entire life, I've, I've my mentors have been individuals that I know that have gone through a specific set of circumstances, whether they're similar to mine or complete opposite to mine. So that way I can learn and from them and, you know, ask some tough question and get some feedback. And this is a, a person that worked for me, right? I was mm -hmm. his boss and he was my mentor. Why? Cause I came in there with zero experience and he had 16 years, right? Yeah. So who's going to have actually had the least amount of experience in my entire platoon. Right. Every private had more experience than me, right. but I'm supposed to be the boss. So that was a very difficult time. And, but the last thing I'll say about this, this is for any our military folks, if any specifically uh, young lieutenants right now who are leading and also NCOs, you know, the one thing I did tell uh, Staley is that I needed, we needed to be transparent with the platoon. And so when he tells me to shut up, right. Don't, you know, I wanted, I told my platoon what we we're going to do. And he's like, you sure you want to do this? I'm like, absolutely. They need to know that I'm willing to follow the path, but also that I'm not a bitch, right? If I don't right. talk for seven days, my, my soldiers are going to look at me like, this guy's scared. He's an idiot. And first impressions, you know, mean the world for everyone, especially in a combat situation. They need to know mm -hmm. that they trust me. Yeah, and you jumped right again. You had you weren't there before to build that rapport no. with them stateside. Yeah. Dude, they've been fighting for four months, right? Yeah. Here I am. I'm that guy. I'm that new lieutenant. I'm I'm in fucking Benno Brothers. I'm not, you know, Tom Hanks' son. That the replacement, up. yeah. The replacement, literally, yeah. right? They've been through the fighting season, right? And here I am. Hello, guys. So, but I needed to make sure we did it right, and we did it right. Um, I, I to this, that's probably the, the best decision I've ever made in the military. Uh, was that moment? Listen, to my dad's advice and go and work in that piece with Staley. It's completely changed the course and trajectory of my career, 100%, just like that in one hour. So let, let's briefly um, cover uh, the events uh, leading up to um, uh, your, your, you being wounded. Um, and obviously, you know, if you really, if you want to, we, we, again, due to a time, we, we, we can't yeah. cover this too much. But if you really want to know more about it, pick up eight seconds of courage, Flo's book. It's, it, you can find it anywhere on Amazon and pretty much any, any retail. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this, this, this was how, how long into your deployment, uh, were you in, were, were you at that point? Almost seven months in, uh, um, okay. in a deployment. So you were on the tail end of the, the deployment in general, I would imagine. I was at that part where you're making plans for Christmas, where you're buying plane tickets and you know exactly what you're going to do, right? You're, you're the last quarter of your deployment. Home stretch. Home stretch, you know, obviously one of the most dangerous times in the deployment, right? Because your complacency kicks in when you're complacency ready. Complacency kills. That's yeah, that's the complacency that's the kills. Yeah. But um, you know, and you know, we were very, we were well wired, and we were very good about that. We talked about it every single day when we do species PCS before every patrol about complacency kills. That was a saying that we always said. But um, yeah, it was at the end of it. I was ready. I got the point. I was like, all right, a couple more months, and we're back in the states. But um, August. August 8, 2012, it was easy mission. We we're supposed to be there to the Kunar Provincial Security Meeting with Governor Wahidi. Happened every Wednesday at the same time. We didn't go every Wednesday, obviously. And on that specific day, I, uh, I, you know, the night before I called the unit, telling them who I was bringing. I told them I was bringing and, uh, General, I mean, Colonel Mingus, so two brigade commanders, three battalion commanders, an Afghan general, uh, two command sergeant majors, two 
uh, as USA, you know, State Department individuals and uh, a couple majors in my unit of six. And I needed 15 individuals for an escort to go from the combat outpost uh, Fias and walk that 1100 meter movement outside of wire to the security meeting. These, and, these are a lot of individuals with big resumes that you're having to move. Well, I mean, you had the two, you know, I had two brigade commanders in one, yeah. one group. You, this, this, this was a big deal. That would have decimated all of Eastern Afghanistan's leadership at that moment. Right. And so remember those SFAT teams, have you heard, you know, the special, uh, you know, like they are made up of folks who are like logistics and different MOSs and they come in and advise on the, with the Afghans. Is there a special units that came in to like work with oh, the yeah. training, training them? Yeah. Yeah. So that was the person leading cop Fias was part of that group. And so he wasn't a uh, 11 alpha or 11 Bravo. He wasn't infantry. And so when I called him and asked him for the escort, he told me, no, nah, we're going to walk the route route 15 minutes prior. We're, we're clear and secured for you. So then I asked him again, he told me to fuck off. Um, but I figured he was having a bad day and he's going to realize that his boss's boss is coming. So maybe it's a good idea for you to be at the Hilo site to welcome him and walk with him, right? Well, I was wrong. And he took every single one of the soldiers and he walked the path. He cleared it. But guess what he did? He left. Oh, and so when we, walked, when we walked that route, the enemy saw they're not stupid. They've been there for a very long time. They know how we operate, especially when you bring an Afghan general with you. They walk like they're a god. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> even though this Afghan general Hayatullah was awesome, really, really, really liked him. And so they saw as an you know a target of opportunity. And so they came at us with uh, motorcycle to create a diversion, and then multiple suicide bombers. My mission, you know, all this is in the book. If you want to, you know, read it. And my position, I was the closest to the to the bomber, the first bomber, and you know, I just kind of did my own escalation of force, couldn't see a weapon, so couldn't engage with my rifle. They want to end up on CNN and then Leavenworth. So I left my position, screamed at him, ran at him, hit him, grabbed him, realized he has a suicide vest. And the only thing I can think of at that moment was like, man, I got to get him away from uh, the boys as quickly as possible, as far away as possible, and threw him. When he detonated, when he hit the ground, he detonated. Um, obviously, uh, uh, you know, it detonated, he killed four of my brothers, Command Sergeant Major Griffin, Major Gray, Major Kennedy, and, and then Reggie Abdel Fattah, one of the USAID folks. And, um, you know, I gotta, I gotta give props to Tom Mahoney too, my, my RTO. When he saw me run towards that guy and hit him, he came right with me, right? He's just like, didn't give it a second thought. No, nah, he didn't with me, right? He's just like, I'm with you, right? And that's the beauty of the military is that just this brotherhood is that you, I know firefighters, I know policemen, I know first responders are unbelievable, especially what they're doing right now, fighting COVID. Um, but it's just, just a special thing about the military and combat where you will do everything that you can, your power to put your life on the line to help uh, someone else in your teammate. Uh, and, and, and you're you not, and, you, and I'm sorry, go ahead. You, you, yeah. I mean, and, and you do it day in, day out, night in, night out. You don't even think about yourself. Well, being this is the right thing to do. And it's everything in you is so powerful. And that's a situation that obviously went from relatively zero to 100 like that. And that's really hard for the brain to process what's going on. It's kind of amazing that once you realize we're going on, once you realize what was going on and reacted, he, probably not even knowing what was going on, was able to react with you. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the beauty. He got the silver star for it, uh, well-deserved. Um, it's a brother for life, you know. I think, but it's not just him. It's what Brink did. It's what Secor did. 
It's what Ochart did. Ochart to me is the most impressive one because he he was a guy that um, I, I I love this man. Um, he was young. He was a uh, you know, private first class, and he had been he, he was sent to my unit after a traumatic event when they were on a patrol with uh, with Ana, and there he was in one of the he was with one of the infantry units, and one of the Ana turned his rifle on his platoon leader and shot him in the head while they were doing a KLE, a uh, key leader engagement. And so this is one of the guys that they had been training with for three months turned and killed the lieutenant right in front of Ochart. And I fucked with Ochart hard because he felt responsible for not being able to kill that guy prior. And I told him, man, this is, you can't, it's just life. And it's just, it's the ugliness of war and there's nothing you could have done, right? No one can predict what this if He's supposed to be an ally that turn around and, and, and do this. So anyway, on that patrol, what's really interesting is um, I had an unbelievable uh, platoon sergeant in Sergeant First Class, uh, Brink, Brian Brink. And when I didn't have that unit, the, uh, you know, the unit to escort us on the ground, I looked at it. I looked at him, sorry, and we both had the same thought. This is fucked up. And so I changed everything that day, the way we organize ourselves, the way we put people in a diamond. I put myself in the rear, and I'm in the front. I was always in the rear because I wanted responsibility. If something happened, you collapse on a principal, right? So you put them down, and then you drag them away to safety. And I wanted that responsibility. But then I went to Ochar, who's a little bit taller and stronger than me. I said, I want better eyes on, so you're thinking my job. I said, if you see anything wrong, I don't care what it is. You grab the boss, which is, you know, now the 82nd Division Commander, and you take him the complete opposite way of danger. Mm -hmm. Got that? He's like, Raj, that. So when I started moving towards that bomber, guess what he did? He grabbed Mingus right and went the opposite way. And Mingus and him were one of two people who did not get hurt. Okay. I mean, they had concussions, but no, no shrapnel, nothing. Because he did his job. And to me, that is the most impressive thing in this whole piece, is that he listened and reacted as well. Everyone was in cohesion. Everyone knew their job and did their part, and that saved lives. You know, Mahoney, Ochart, Secor, Balarama, Brink, right? All these guys doing their part saved lives. And that's what the beauty of the military is, that we are at our best in some of the toughest and most of austere situations. And so that's what happened. That's why August 8, 2012, is very important. That's why I also called it eight seconds of courage, because that's the beauty and the irony in this whole thing is that you can train your whole life, go on multiple deployments, but all it takes is a few seconds to completely change your life and, right. and you're back to your life. How did I react? Why did I react that way? And what could I have done better? Or like, am I proud of the way we reacted? And then that leads to my injuries. And, and, and I, you know, I, I think you wanted to get there too, where I spent the next couple of months of my life as an inpatient on Walter Reed. And mixed in with the drugs, ketamine, oxys, Dilaudid, I blamed myself for losing those guys. And I was very angry at myself. And I tried to replay the scenario over and over again. And I was lucky enough that the Gold Star families came to me, embraced me, gave me love, told me that they were just proud of me and that I did the right thing. Uh, I, I don't know. If, I wouldn't call that rare, but I would assume it's not common for you to have to build that relationship so early on afterwards. So... Uh, yeah. that's, it's very unique circumstances that a uh, unique relationship that you have with them, um, kind of meeting them so early on. 
I think so. I mean, it was tough, but it saved my life in essence also. They're part of the reason I'm still on this earth because I was had some very dark and negative thoughts in my head. And, you know, I promised them that I will do everything that I can the rest of my life to earn the right to still be on this earth, to represent them and their loved ones who, you know, passed away and to make sure that I, I you know, that I'm, I'm, that I deserve it. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, Every time I talk about August 8, 2012, every time I talk about my military background or my military history, I always bring up their names because that's the most important part of my entire journey. Um, and you know how that is, right? Your friends don't get to come home. It's just, you know, we're badasses. We'll go out there. We'll fight. We'll get dirty. We won't, we'll eat shit. But once one of our friends takes it, that's the hardest thing we ever have to deal with. Um, and because part of it, we're all we're also selfish, but we're also human, which means that you, you realize that could have been me. Maybe it should have been me instead of them or why them. And how, why did I deserve to still be here? And so that's the toughest question, but that's freaking life, man. That's combat and that's life. We don't get to dictate when it's our end, right? That's something greater than us. And it's a tale as old as time. And and what you were going through in Walter Reed, while the technology and the circumstances and the war had changed, you know, it, it's really the same thing a, a, a young soldier was going through 60 or 70 years ago, laying in a hospital bed in, in France, you know, or, or yeah. Italy or Germany. It's the same thing that from, from every national nationality in every period, um, soldiers have had to kind of reckon with uh, what they, they've gone through. Yeah, it's tough reality. But um, my eyes were ahead. open with people like Travis Mills, Derek Wada. You know, uh, even Cal Carpenter, right? All these guys mm-hmm. that get, you know, suffered and many, many more, many, many more, you know, freaking Jason Pock mm-hmm. that I work with at Boeing now, but lost both his legs. Uh, and these, these folks really motivated me and opened my eyes in my darkest times to realize that, hey, man, I'm blessed. Like, this could have been a lot worse. Uh, and I need to stop, being, stop complaining about my injuries. And that changed my life. I, I noticed uh, the first time you and I met was in 2016 uh, at Walter. Well, uh, we went to Walter Reed uh, the same day that we met, and I it was very apparent early on. We were screening uh, the the film, and yeah. it was very apparent that you had a very special connection with Walter Reed. Like, hey, I you were you were giving kind of an ad hoc tour of the place. You knew the place like the back of your hand. Obviously, you spent a lot of time there, yeah. but it, it was very apparent that you had a very special connection with the staff there and, and, and obviously the patients who were in there at the time. And luckily, at, during 2016, the amount of combat wounded had yeah. decreased there dramatically. Yeah, it's well, it's a huge part of my life. I spent you know, years recovering and you know, I, I, I end up working for the Defense Intelligence Agency out of, you know, based off my time at Walter Reed. and so much and I spent the my darkest days in that place and I came out stronger because of the place and the folks in it and so I 100% respect what they do and understand the difficulties because they had to deal with people like me uh, which was very hard to do so for a while but I also understood that um, the power of, of a good smile and laugh and what you guys did on that specific day when uh, range 15 when you screened it was so powerful it was the first time I saw some of these guys actually right and it was they were able to just let go for a second you, you know meet you guys they were big stars for them right and truly like feel uh, excited about what they've gone through and and 
for one second in their lives, for one second in their lives, they felt lucky to be in that place because yeah. you guys, because they Can got to be there with you. It's well, it's amazing just being on uh, when you're on deployment and you could be in the middle of nowhere. It's somebody putting a movie into their laptop and everyone huddling around and watching a movie. It's amazing. There's a, this brief period of time where you forget where you're at and it's the best possible feeling. Even when you come out of it and you realize where you're at, you feel good knowing that you were able to escape it just for an hour or so. Um, I agree. Now, so, so I, 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 I'm not um, aware of this part of your story. Were you, when you were informed that you were going to be uh, receiving the Medal of Honor, were you still in the army at that point or were you already done and discharged? I was out. Yeah. What were you doing? So, you were in, was, D, you, but you, you were, you were in the Maryland DC DMV area. Correct? Yeah. 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 I was working for a special unit, um, in the clandestine services, uh, that, you know, part of the three letter E's. And I was actually in area 51 right next to it, doing some helo inserts, working with different folks from, um, military forces to our you know spies and and it was awesome man i was i was in heaven for for a little while because i never you know i'll be honest with you i, I left the army people are like yeah you never got anything for august 8th i was like nah don't care man didn't join the army for for any reward i just wanted to be out i wanted to be out yeah. of, i wanted my ratings i wanted to be out i wanted to you know move on from august 8th at that moment and continue serving in a different fashion and so here I was, and I had a call from Colonel Slaney at the Pentagon asking me if I would be willing to uh, take a call at 2 o'clock, 1400 from the Pentagon, between 1400 and 1430. And I thought, I was like, shit, did I do something in Afghanistan like, that I'm going to investigate on? But, like, you know what I mean? I was bro, like scared. Bro, you're the third person I know uh, with a Medal of Honor who has said that exact same thing. Yeah, well, you don't know. Man. Everybody, like everybody thinks they're about to get charged with something. Like the statement yeah. of charges is about to come out from all those years. They, the, the receipt, the hand receipt came back for They want to give us some money, basically. Hey, you want to hear something funny right now? Eric Prince, is, Eric Prince, you know what that is, right? Yeah, he yeah. shot me a message on, on LinkedIn right now as I, just, this thing just popped up. This thing's just such a crazy world. Yeah. And he knows a little something about controversy, yeah. Oh, 100%. 100%. But, um, yeah, instead of being investigated for that, I actually was uh, President Obama calling me to inform me that I'd be receiving the Medal of Honor. So so they didn't even tell you it was going to be the president you were talking no. to? No. Oh. No. <laughs> Hell no. No. Hell no. Did they so say, hold on? Did you, did you think it? Yeah. Did you think it was real? I was going to talk to you or how did that work? So, so, you know, the guy that I was working for was a, a colonel in the Special Forces for the unit I was with. And um, he was like, listen, first of all, take the day off. And then uh, he's like, there's two possible outcomes. One, you did something really stupid, and they're going to call you and, and tell you that you're going to be investigated. He's like, highly unlikely. Probably would have had CID show up here and, take, you know, have – He's like, or two, you're probably going to get your an award. And so at the time, remember, I was never putting, I didn't know I was putting for the Medal of Honor. I was, I knew that I was putting for the Distinguished Service Cross. Mm-hmm. Now there had been rumblings about my Distinguished Service Cross being upgraded to a Medal of Honor in, in a process, but denied. So mm-hmm. that was what we had heard in February of 2015, that it was denied. And so and because people were asking, you know, questions like, how long is it going, you know, why don't you have this award? I had no idea. So, but HRC, so I had someone in HRC gave me that information. 
And I was cool with it. I was like, that's cool, whatever. I don't care. So we kind of figured, oh, more than likely Pentagon, Distinguished Service Cross, or Silver, or whatever. And so when I picked up the phone, it rang at 1400 on the dot. And it said, this is so-and-so from the White House. Would you mind holding for a president? I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> like, okay. Okay. And then, um, yeah, it was a big O who called me. And I'd, I'd met him a few times prior to that. And so, and he was just, he was so cool about it. Like, I'm, you know, I don't care what anybody feels about him. Uh, to me, he's, he's a mentor and, and I respect the hell out of him. I, he, the, I, this is what I told him. And he, right after I met him, I said, I never voted for you. So, <laughs> but, I, I, I don't, I've never heard of anybody having politics aside. I've never heard of anyone having any uh, dealing with him and having a bad word to say about him as far as meeting him, whether it be casually or, yeah. For, for whatever reason, everyone that I've ever met that has met him, no one's ever had a bad thing to say about him as, as a person, at least. Yeah, well, you know, I respect the hell out of him. I think, you know what, he did something good at the end. I'll, I'll politicize this thing a little bit. At the end of his second term, he finally started getting it in terms of supporting our military and, and be a big voice for our military. I wish that would happen in 08, 09, right? But mm -hmm. it's just the way the world works, right? It's He's a human being. All right, and it's it's the hardest he, job he, in the he, world. He, he's a lawyer from Chicago. He didn't come from a background where he was dealing with things like the Pentagon and everything like that. Yeah, and it's, yeah. you know, but no matter what, even our current president, it's the hardest job in the world. It's the no, hardest yeah. job in the world. So you, you need to, you know, it's not like good good luck you going out there and try to freaking you know lead the free world. It's, there's so many different you know they they age situations. Fast. So All like. Of them. And yeah, and they do, and so hell of a lot of respect. But um, yeah, and that's that was that part that that completely changed my life again. Right, I could no longer work for the unit I was working for. <laughs> so yeah, because you've become a you've become at that point they're already writing your Wikipedia pages, right? You become a little so I'm like, high profile. My question: Who the fuck writes Wikipedia pages? Because my Wikipedia, Wikipedia page was there in less than like two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy no it, it was it accurate at least was it was it close or when you read it uh it was okay you know, it said some weird shit uh in there and then as soon as i spoke at the dnc in 2016 right uh they, it, they wrote a line that i went directly against trump so and i was on it for a long time so i kept deleting it that and, was not and, your intentions at all for speaking. You wanted, no. you wanted to have a platform to talk about veterans issues yeah. in the military. RN invited me. DNC invited me to go speak, you know, about veterans. Of course, at that point, now you're associated with this whole piece. But you know what? I'll tell you what. To all, and some people are going to hate it, but I spent a lot of time with Walter Reed. And yes, I saw Hillary Clinton come to Walter Reed with no fanfare, no cameras, no nothing, and spend multiple hours with Gold Star families and also wounded families. She spent a lot of time with my mom. Um, I, you know, and so I it was, felt This like, was when she was sec I, I don't remember the timeline. Was she Secretary of the State? Secretary yeah, of State at secretary, the time? Okay. Yeah. And so I saw a different side from her. I put Paul's, whatever she emails, and all that stuff, right? And Benghazi, I have a different take on Benghazi. Some people would disagree, but guess who was my, my, my bunkmate for it? Like literally next door is David, right? David is played by that black guy in the movie 13 Hours. Uh -huh. So I got the whole Benghazi story pretty uh -huh. damn accurate from, from the horse's mouth there. Yeah. And there's a little bit, so, and, and he, 
you know, he spent some time with her and talking to her and, and good stuff. Right? And so I had a different vision and view. And so when they asked me to speak about veteran, I said, no. And then at the end, I thought about it. And I said, you know what? Screw it. Let's go talk to the, one of the biggest stages in the world about the importance of having huge platform. Our veterans. And yeah. so I did that. Of course, I got because, thousands because, of hate messages. Because <laughs> they don't realize no matter, who's a, no matter who's elected, we need to have advocates working with or in the White House for, for, for veterans and, and, you know, for the military as well, obviously. But, like, that's what a lot of people who uh, veer too far to any political – uh, spectrum. They don't realize that just because you're associated some with someone, it, it doesn't necessarily mean you endorse them across the board. But they give you a platform to help people you need to help or want to help. That's exactly what it was to me. And guess what? I I support the Commander in Chief and the President of the United States. What is Republican, Democrat, Independent, whatever Tea Party? I respect the seat. I respect the position. I respect the president. All right, and I will always serve the president in our country. So. That is my, uh, the beauty and the freedoms that I was provided in the United States, you know, in this country. And I fought for is to go out there and, you know, be supportive of something. To me, it's veterans, what I'm all passionate about. So anyway, I got a lot of hate comments, apparently. Um, some of my favorite ones were like, oh, he's, a, he's a Obama's son, and they're, they both form Al-Qaeda. So that was like, you know, it's also some crazy shit. Uh, yeah. I lost a couple of friends over it, but it's okay. You know, I made friends like you. You guys never judge me. Well, uh, well, you, well this is the thing. Yeah, the, they the, weren't the worst, your friends in the first place. If they're not your friends now, because you did that. Fact. I mean, this is what it is. You know. Yeah. You know what's terrible is you know obviously you received this medal and um, this is not this is not like an athletic or business endeavor that you sought out, right? This isn't or or, or any type of celebrity that you sought out. It's just it's it's a result of something you are involved with, and. I would imagine people think they own you because of the medal. They think that you owe them um, something, right? And when you yeah, some, when you're your, yeah. when 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 you're yourself and and you you march the beat of your own drum as any human being should, um, it offends them because to them that medal is that it's a way it's a way to propagate however they feel. It, it's they think they think they own it basically and they think they own you but 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 the biggest piece is this i didn't go there with the medal and i never said i'm a medal of honor recipient in my right. speech i said i'm an immigrant i'm a veteran yes um, and i don't come here as a democrat or a republican i come here as a veteran and that was my 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 you know that that was my justification of being on such a big stage but bro that day changed my life it's the first time in my life that I ever saw, I think his name is Lance Bass from Boyce Two Men or whatever it was, <laughs> Instant, staring baby. in my eyes. Yeah. He was right in front of me right there. I remember him being there in that crowd. And I'm like, God, it's that dude, man. He's like, stop looking at me. I was like, so uncomfortable. But, um, and I'd be up behind me, you got Katy Perry, you know, and you got Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. <laughs> it's just like, it was like, it was ridiculous well, was setting ever. And then, then to my left there, people call me a baby killer, right? It was awesome. It was no. crazy. No. <laughs> the serious people were angry at me. I don't know why. <laughs> oh, geez. Uh, some of them can be fringe, I would imagine. No, no, I have a question. Wait, were you more starstruck by Katy Perry and Lance Bass or the President of the United States when you first met him? I, I think Obama, man. When okay. I met Obama, I met I met Obama on September 11, 2012, the oh, day wow. of Benghazi. Oh um, wow! 
Yeah. And um, he uh, he still came to see us. And he came and he asked everyone of his posse, every room that he went into to leave. Uh, he asked if you guys want you as a photographer for us only, if they want, if you can tell the photographer to leave. And he spent 10 minutes in my room. And just to have him in a room, that was the first president I'd ever met, was just unreal. And he was just so chill. So that was probably the biggest piece. That, that, that was that's the top piece there. And then, you know, meeting 43, he's a big push. And, uh, he's a, he is, again, you always have to take politics aside and let's, you have to put those personal feelings of politics aside. But when you, he's, he's a likable guy. Oh, he's amazing. I wouldn't yeah. drink beers with him any day, 100%. Yeah. Uh, there's a, there's a reason why him and Ellen are best friends. He's just a likable guy to be around. He's just got, he's funny, man. Like, he's yeah. truly funny. And I feel like after he got done being president, he was able to be himself, you know? Yeah. You know what, though? I mean, look at, look at you're going to look at, in the end, all you're going to look at is Bush. You're going to see 9-11 and the Iraq War. That's all mm -hmm. you're going to see. That'll be and then I think you're going to end up seeing Trump. Uh, with the China piece, you're not even gonna mm -hmm. forget the whole Russia stuff. It's gonna be China and this pandemic. I think this pandemic mm -hmm. is gonna be on. You know, this this how you're gonna remember these folks and people are gonna disagree on on um, you know both presidents how they reacted and acted, right? Whether it was good or bad, and that's just and you know if you look at Obama, right? I'm still I, and I told him, I, I said this is the hardest part for me was getting out of Iraq so fast. I just thought like we made a wrong turn, and that to me, it's hard to fund his first term, right? And then, so just life, but it's difficult. But yeah, yeah. I think Obama was by far the biggest. Lance Bass was just odd. I was just felt really like weirded out for a second. I was just like, God, he's just like this guy's too, was like, this guy's too pretty to be real. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, he so, is. <laughs> the the last time I saw you, uh, you were still living in D.C., um, but. Uh, tell us what you've been up to lately. So you you've moved out west. Yeah, I work. You're married. For, uh, uh, moved out west. Yeah, Seattle area. I work for Boeing. I've been working for Boeing for almost four years now. I ran from. I ran their veterans programs. I became chief of staff of Boeing commercial airplanes, and now I'm. Um, I, I work in the sales marketing piece, with specifically dealing with Russia and Central Asia uh, as a deputy vice president. And um, they took a lot of risk on me, in my opinion. Because I didn't have an engineering degree, I didn't have aerospace industry background. Right, you, you, that's not your that's not your background no. at all. Yeah. But they they looked at my military background and they said, you know what, you bring a lot to the table, and we do believe that you'll be able to learn the material and the business, you know, uh, naturally. But we, your skill set, your organization skills, your leadership skills, your, all that good stuff put together into a package uh, is going to be very beneficial to our group and. So I got to be chief of staff for, for a sixty-five billion dollar business with seventy thousand employees. Um, and that's and that's what I was gonna say. I would imagine putting you in there as a, I'm sorry if I get the title wrong or the position wrong. The veterans hiring coordinator, you said. Well, I, I so I ran no not not the hiring piece. I ran the philanthropic house, all the investments. I ran veterans affairs for for Boeing. Yeah. So, but I would imagine um, that 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 helped you uh, garner a reputation within the company that you could handle certain things. So if they were going to, obviously they were going to uh, promote within, you know, yeah. you had already uh, learned this, you know, the, the inner workings of the company for a while. 
Oh, 100%. I mean, it's a huge business, right? You're talking about, yeah. I got an opportunity. I, you know, the first thing I told him, I need it. As soon as I got into the job, within a week, I said, I need $2 million because I want us to be presenting sponsors for the Warrior Games in Chicago. And they're like, <gasps> what? I, was like, I, just I told him, I was like, this is going to be next level. You're going to see. And then in the end, we had, we, you know, we partnered with the Navy. We partnered with the city of Chicago. And with the and then uh, with Fisher House, became you know a nonprofit uh, presenting sponsor. We became a corporate presenting sponsor. Put two million dollars. Put nine months of work nonstop with our folks and resources. We put twenty two thousand people in Soldier Field. Had a Clarkston and the other guy from The Voice. Uh, um, I forget his name. Uh, country singer. Um, they did you know a concert. Did my boy John Stewart was the MC. We we had all. You know, every he's another one of those guys that everybody likes. He's just a super like amazing guy. He's yeah. amazing because he does. He, 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 he does walks the walk. Man. Yeah, he does a lot. For the he walks the walk. And so and then we uh, we put 22,000 people in a, in, in a stadium. They got to watch an unbelievable opening ceremonies. And after that, we went around all the city of Chicago, United Center, Soldier Field at great events. Did raise so much money. Uh, and, you know, at the word against it was amazing. And then after that, some of the cool things we did. Um, we did a big partnership with U.S. Stone Pathfinder for veterans transitioning, veteran spouses transition out of the military based on base. We put millions of dollars. And then we committed $25 million in over a three-year period for just specifically veteran-owned uh, nonprofits and VSOs to support. Also, while committing 1.7 million hours of volunteer from our employees into our community. So, yeah, that I had an awesome team. It's cool because I came into a company that I didn't have to reinvent the wheel. The wheel was there. What I had to do is just kind of realign it and bring the right resources around it. And then as a group and as a team, we managed to, you know, grow it and, and, and pull something cool out of it. And today, Jason Pop runs, runs it. He's awesome. He's amazing. And we're just doing some great things. We just we still work a little bit on how do we tell our story so people know what we're actually doing. But, yeah, that was it. And I, I, I would imagine, you know, uh, I would imagine, you know, it's a very fulfilling thing to be able to kind of give back uh, by working in that kind of environment, not just for such a huge company, but um, obviously you're getting to uh, give back to veterans uh, quite a yeah. bit uh, within the organization. You have a lot, and you have a lot of resources to do so. That's the biggest piece, man, you know, veterans and spouses and, you know, even active military, and it's the back the fact that you have the Boeing company, you have at the time, you know, a big page, a bank account, and to support. Mm -hmm. But most important is the resources and, and the belief from the leadership in it. That's the biggest piece. Like you got to have your CEO and your chairman, the board, all those top folks to believe in the mission, because without them, you can go so far. And so they did, I, and, and it's been good. For a company like Boeing, too, it's advantageous to, to hire veterans, especially considering the large presence aviation has, you know, yeah. in the military. I would imagine um, veterans are big contributors, have historically been big contributors at a company like that. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, 15% of our workforce, that's a big number wow. for us, too, Yeah, our yeah. veterans, right? That's disproportionately um, you know, high compared to the, the, the rest of uh, industry. Absolutely. So here we are and, you know, we're doing it because it's the right thing to do because some of the best people that we have in our company are veterans. And yeah, a lot of them have experience, but it's just the mindset too that uh, our veterans bring to the table 
And so, and the spouses too, you know, that's the big mm. thing too about hiring the spouses as well. And I think we all understand that piece, you know, Burbiz is a great, uh, you know, Burbiz does a hell of a job. And as part of the, the introduction, right, you're talking about Burbiz, you talk about veterans, you talk about spouses, you can never forget spouses. So that's just incredibly important. But, uh, and that's how we feel. And that's the way America should be. That's the way every company should go about it. There's an advantage to hiring our veterans. You're hiring people who committed to something greater than themselves. Any, mm -hmm. whatever the reason why they went in the military. So that just tells you just a little about their character. It also tells you that you're committing to people who are adaptable and who can be molded, right? With the right type of gui guidance, leadership, and training. And then finally, you're, 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 you're bringing in people who are mission-centric. It's not about them in the end. They just want to go out there and be a part of something good and bigger mm -hmm. than themselves. And that's cool. That's why I always will hire veterans. Not saying every veteran's right, Right. right. Yeah. Quite a few of them. Quite but, a few. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but you, that's on you to do the, the right vetting process, but mm -hmm. give them a shot. Listen to their story. Don't judge them based on freaking resume. And by the way, resume should be obsolete. You should not do. We have way too many systems from LinkedIn to all that stuff, right? To, to go out there and, and, and completely get rid of resumes. And um, I would imagine, and you're, are you a big fan of face-to-face? I'm a big fan of, I like face to face, but I like, what I'm a big fan of is, is hearing a story. I want to know like, yeah, I get it. A resume tells me where, you know, some of the stuff you did, but I've never hired anyone based off the resumes. I haven't, I refuse to do it. I, I hire people based on a conversation because if within if one conversation, I'll know the, their commitment level, I'll know what they want to do, who they are. Really what's important to me is their character and how they're going to fit in with the team. And you can tell, you know, arrogance and, and assholes real, you know, real quick. Right. And sometimes mm -hmm. I've been, you know, considered arrogant and that's, you know, and I didn't represent myself correctly and that's on mm -hmm. me to fix myself. So it's just the way, the way it is. But yeah, I just went on a, on a tangent here. No big deal. Hey, we're listening. We're listening. The good, th the good thing about this is we, we, we don't have a set time. We have a general time, but with that general time, Scott, <laughs> we're, we're past Scott, that by the way, <laughs> we're past the general. I've said, well, we're, we're inching past it. Yeah. Scott, Scott, is there anything that you wanted to ask or add? No, just the one thing I would want to state is, uh, Flo, if you're not the American dream, I don't know what is, right? I mean, if we talk about from where you came from, your background, where you, you know, you talk about from being an immigrant, coming here, not knowing language, and then taking advantage of every possible situation of being patriotic and going everything. If I, and then, of course, all the way up to the incredible part of being a Medal of Honor recipient and then being very successful with Boeing and then everything else. The reality is, is I just want to say that if that's not the American dream, Jack and Flo, I don't know what is. Like, there is 100%. I'm not sure. If people want to talk anything else in the world, Wait, I thought the American dream. <laughs> I thought the American dream was eating McDonald's every single day. Well, he started there and look where he wound up. Yeah. Yeah. That, that enticed him. I mean, there was your, your dad was a great salesman. He knew exactly how to get you. And he was. That's what he was. And then he got you to go do that. So wait, I, I didn't maybe I missed it. So did you meet Michael Jordan? He walked by me. Well, I was at UNC Wilmington one time. So That's technically, it happened. That's right. He, he's from he's from uh, Eastern uh, North Carolina. That's he, right. You, you, you walk past greatness, and you felt it. I'm sure. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> Listen, I did something with a president that's uh, that was after Bill Clinton and before Obama, and I can't talk about it yet. And he and then 
that team promised me that I'm going to have my, my meeting with Michael Jordan at some point. So, so I'm I was going to, I was going to ask if you could take back meeting the president, I mean, you've met a few presidents actually, but if you could take back meeting any of the past presidents and swap them out with Michael Jordan, would you, would you take that opportunity? No. Okay. All right. All right. Respect. No. Respect. You know what? I, I, um, I'm, um, I'm very, I, I'm, there's something about the president, the seat of the presidency that's just so important to me. And that it's just the biggest honor you can ever have, right? Because these people, no matter what you think of them, have done so much in their lives to be put in that position. It's, it's unbelievable to become elected president of this country, any country, really. Right. Uh, you know, and, and that to me is just so phenomenal. Now, I just hope that they do the right thing with it, right? That's the end. But so, no. And, you know, Michael Jordan, though, I hell of a lot of respect. He does a lot. And it would be an honor to meet him and shake his hand or just if he walks by me again. <laughs> but, no. Uh, you know what, man? It's just like life. I'm just grateful for whatever I've been presented in front of me and people I've met and the friends I've made. And just it is what it is. But now if you said Brian Erlacher, I'd change that a couple presidents. You know, I'll switch over. But <laughs> just kidding. I, just, I, I met Brian. <laughs> I met Brian. <laughs> I mean, he's uh, he, he's been retired. He's been retired for a few years. He's still looking like he could uh, put on a helmet. He's got oh, that hair now, though. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I'm gonna go in that uh, that Scott. You know, that American dream piece. I agree, but I also put a little asterisk to it and a little caveat to it. Yeah. That's you don't. The American dream to me is not about coming here and be able. You know, and it's just going to happen, right? Because of the country, the way things are processed here, the opportunities. It's about what you do with those opportunities. That's the beauty about this country. But you got to work hard for it. You got you. It's not going to come easy. You're going to have to suffer. But once, when someone provides you with an opportunity, you got to walk through that door. You got to really, you got to be willing to take that chance, and you got to be willing to fail and learn from it and get back up. That's how we succeed in this country. It's not free. I hate when people say it's free. You got to earn that shit. And so I was blessed and lucky to have Larry, my dad, you know, give me the opportunity to come here in this country. But he also paved the way and he taught me how to go through it. But he also allowed me to fail. And then he told me I had to earn it every step of the way. And, you know, I had a lot of financial bills coming out of college, right? Because the scholarship was zero pretty much, you know, for track and field, little. But, and I had debt like crazy and all that stuff. And I'm maneuvering my way. I worked 30 hours a week in college while being a Division One athlete and going to school. Oof. And also trying to have a social life. Right? I worked my ass off my entire life everywhere I went to make it. I still do today. That's why I'm working like this in a big corporate American you know, company and, and trying to earn my way through. That's how you, that's how you can afford your way through Seattle. <laughs> that's another reason. <laughs> <laughs> but coming from D.C., I, I can't imagine. It'd be a lot worse if you were maybe coming from you know, Atlanta or San Antonio. I mean, DC is still, you were living, yeah, you were it's, living it's in compar- a nice I mean, place DC, too. It's like comparable. I mean, in the end, it's almost the same. There's like housing's more expensive here, food's more expensive here. I had no state income tax, which is huge, huge, huge here. You And you know that out there in, yes. in, in Texas. I know, we, but, got, we, know we're t- we got to get you down here in Texas one of these days. We will, as soon as this thing's up, we're, I'm flying out there. 100%. We'll 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 go ride we'll go ride some dirt bikes at Jared's place. He, you know, Jared, he needs company. I just want botox. 
I want Botox. <laughs> <laughs> I think on, 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 we're, we're going to wrap it up here. Uh, Flo Groberg from uh, Young Man uh, uh, slugging it out on the streets of Paris to army, <laughs> American Army soldiers slugging it out in Afghanistan to uh, Boeing employees slugging it out in the office. Uh, seriously, uh, thank you so much for uh, coming on here, man. Oh.